You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, everybody, and uh, welcome back to the show. We have another cool episode today and uh, today we're going to be talking with a gentleman who is our very first repeat customer so to speak this is the second time he's been on the show and his name is Ben Torimson and uh, you might remember him from the ASAT camo uh, podcast that we did and if you haven't uh, heard that one make sure you guys go and check it out now but this time we're not going to be talking about ASAT Camo. We're going to be talking about Ben and his hunting adventures, I guess you could say. Um, we're going to be talking about whitetail. We're going to be talking about mule deer. We're going to be talking about elk and uh, some of some cool adventures that he's had throughout his life and a little bit about where he started in Minnesota to how he ended up in uh, Bozeman, Montana. And uh, I think there's a, some, there's a really cool story behind it that I think you guys are going to like. Now, the second thing I want to mention real quick before we get into the podcast is I have started doing live feeds on my Facebook page, on the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page. And uh, the first two that I that I did were kind of just tests. And uh, if you are not familiar with the live feeds, basically what I do is I turn on my phone, I point it at myself, and I talk like an idiot for 30 minutes. So uh, this last uh, podcast or this last live feed, I guess you'd say, I talked about my favorite shed antlers, and uh, then I took some Q&A at the end, and basically just, uh, it's called the Nine Finger Chronicles Live BS Sessions. So um, I, I typically make posts on my Facebook page, and uh, you'll, that's where you're, when you will know when the next live feed will be. So I need everybody to make sure that you not only um, every once in a while check out the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page, but when you do watch the live feed or watch um, the, the recording after the live feed, make sure you follow it. So what that does is it allows you to um, become notified whenever I'm streaming. Uh, let's see. And then the, and I think that's going to be it. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be a good podcast today. We're gonna, we're just gonna slowly walk downhill towards the weekend or 
you know, if you're like me, you just kind of cannonball into it and your weekend typically starts about Wednesdays anyway. I mean, really, I mean, we, it all kind of does. Anyway, what I'm getting at is uh, this podcast is going to be really cool. But before we get into this podcast, I sat down with Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras and I asked him what the inspiration was behind starting Exodus Outdoor Gear. Uh, you know, the biggest thing I believe that got us to this point is just frustration, not being happy with the products that were out there on the market, wanting to see better options on the market, looking around at all the all the hype and the buzz and the endorsements that go on in this industry and wanting to see products, at least in the trail camera side of things that we could get into um, that were built solid, that were backed with great customer service and that would last longer than two or three years was was really the biggest thing for us. I'm telling you guys, those trail cameras are really badass. So if you want to find out more information about Exodus and uh, their trail cameras, make sure you visit exodusoutdoorgear.com. And now let's get into this week's Hunter Profile podcast. All right. On the phone with me now is Ben Gatoramson. How's it going today, Ben? Uh, It's going great. How, uh, how about yourself, Dan? You know, I'm doing I'm doing really good. I must say that Ben is the very first returning guest on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. You, this is your second appearance on the show. The very first appearance um, was with ASAT Camo. You are uh, you work for ASAT. You're the I guess the the national sales manager. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Uh, I'm kind of jack of all trades with ASAT. I'm, I'm handling. Uh, a lot of their marketing and a lot of their their new development and design as well. So it's, I got my hands in all kinds of stuff. Gotcha. So. And uh, where do you currently live? Uh, right now, I live in Bozeman, Montana. Um, I've been on here for uh, just shy of ten years. Gotcha. So you're, but you're originally from the Midwest, correct? That is correct. Yeah, I grew up uh, in Minnesota, um, and uh, my parents. We, we had a lake home in northern Minnesota, so I grew up fishing bass, walleye, muskie, um, and uh, you know, kind of fell in love with with hunting at a young age. You know, started duck hunting and bird hunting and and stuff like that. Rough grouse up in the Chippewa National Forest, uh, north central Minnesota, and then I kind of transitioned into archery, and I got a, a start in archery. Um, some friends of mine in high school had uh, this spot that they would go bow fish in the afternoons. And, um, I remember, I remember buying my first bow. Um, I think I was probably 15 at a pawn shop and getting it all rigged up for bow fishing and, you know, and going and chasing carp and suckers up these creeks, uh, you know, just, just, uh, north of the twin city area, kind of in a rural area. So, what was that first bow that you got? If, do you remember it? Yep, I do. It was a Hoyt Rebel. Um, is what it was. Yeah, I still have it. Oh, nice. Um, it's it's one of the. <laughs> uh, I I go through bows very quickly now. I mean, I typically will shoot a bow for for one year, and then I'll I'll move on to another one, and and sometimes I'll, I'll go through two bows. But I I kept that one, and uh, I don't know why it's, it's hanging in my garage. It still has a bow fishing reel on it. And anytime I get the itch and, or have the opportunity to go bow fishing, it still goes out with me. Um, you know, out, out now and being in the West, I, 
there isn't quite the opportunity for that um, that you have in the Midwest. But uh, um, for a period, I lived in southeast Minnesota, um, and uh, you know, you fish in the backwaters. You know, bow fishing backwaters in the Mississippi. You get into you know, long nose and short nose gar and all kinds of cool stuff. And and that's that's I can say that that's one of the only bows that stuck with me for for my entire bow hunting career, as you'd say. So that's kind of cool. So so how old are you? I am thirty five. Okay, so you're the same age as me. Um, when w- Okay, you got your bow and you started doing some bow fishing. When did you start transitioning from or using your bow to hunt deer in Minnesota? That same year. I mean, that was a that was a spring deal. Um when I when I bought that bow from a pawn shop, um and I think I I I shot it like crazy all summer and then I I'm like, "Well, let's let's try hunting now. Let's try hunting deer and whatever else I can hunt with it." So I I started deer hunting with it and, uh, you know, this was probably 1996 or something like that. Um, and I, uh, I was terrible. I was, I <laughs> was horrible at it. Um, I, I remember, um, on the North end of the twin city area, there was a wildlife management area called Carlos Avery and any, anybody that's, that's lived or, you know, has been in the North part of uh, Minneapolis for any given period of time. That's, it's this, it's the North, North side of town. It's about an hour, hour and a half North of say, you know, the Minneapolis area. And it's, I mean, you have a large population of people and it gets hunted very, very hard. So the deer are very nocturnal. And I remember going out time and time and time again and, never even seeing animals. Um, I didn't have access to any private property. Everything I was hunting was public land and it was heavily pressured, but I still enjoyed being out. Um, and you know, pursuing animals. And, uh, I, I was a, I was a firearm hunter obviously before I was a gun hunter and, and I loved doing that as well. You know, we had a, my parents, bringing me up we had a cabin a lake home in north central minnesota and um you know the tradition of 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 hunting with a rifle was open you know the first weekend in november in minnesota something like 400 plus thousand firearm hunters take to the woods and and it was we we hunted public land with that and it would turn into an absolute zoo i mean these dirt roads that you could drive down you know 20 miles and not see another person all of a sudden, every little, you know, pull out, every little, you know, logging road that juts off the, the main road had a camp. So I, I, I can say I hunted, you know, in Minnesota, you legally had to be 12 years old to hunt with a firearm. And when you started hunting, I bet I went four or five years without shooting a deer with a rifle, even. Um, I bet I was, you know, 15 when I, when I, and I remember my first kill with a rifle, like it was yesterday. And I think if I'd have gotten that deer the first year, I might not be into hunting as much today as I am because it was so challenging and, you know, there was nothing easy about it. I got really, really frustrated at times, but that first, that first animal harvest that I, I was able to make, it was, 
um, a friend of the family had invited us down to actually a private farm. You know, I'd grown up hunting public land and, um, he invited us down and said, yeah, we got some deer. We'll try to get Ben a deer. You know, he's been hunting hard for a couple of years now and hasn't been able to, to get one. And sure enough, I, um, he, they sent me up this field edge and it was, it was not like what I was used to hunting. It was, uh, it was, you know, not egg fields, but open fields. You know, I'm, I'm, I grew up big woods hunting and there was a deer that had come out early across the field and I got up to, uh, and I had a range finder and everything from, um, you know, from my bow hunting or, or no, I didn't have a range finder. If I remember correctly, I didn't have anything. I just got up to what I saw was a comfortable distance. And, you know, that, that first animal you shoot at or shoot, you get, you, you're, you're, I mean, it, it, you get a reoccurrence of it every time you're in that situation. But I mean, I remember the adrenaline rush and everything. I laid down prone in this field and this deer had fed out and it was, it was obviously, it was a young deer. It was a button buck, but, um, I, I made a good shot at close to 200 yards. And, uh, I mean, I, I still have pictures of that deer. I mean, it's as insignificant an animal it was, it would be to me now. I mean, it, it was like the culmination of every, all the effort that I put into it. Like back in the day, it was, it was, yeah, it was so, it was, I mean, I haven't ever talked about that story in, 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 in a long time, probably years, you know, several years and talking about it now, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember, you know, breathing really heavy and trying to calm myself down. And I actually fogged up the scope on my rifle because I was so excited and I had to wait till it kind of cleared off so I could see through it. And I, I shot that deer and, and then after, you know, shortly after that, probably three, four years is when I got into bow hunting and then I hunted hard. Um, and I remember how, how surreal it was to be in the woods that during firearm season was so busy out bow hunting. There was nobody, you had the whole place to yourself. You didn't have to worry about somebody walking up or walking into your finger of woods and being in a stand a hundred yards away that you could see them or something like that. You had the whole place to yourself. And that's kind of where I fell into, you know, I, I kind of fell in love with bull hunting for that regard. I mean, everything is on you. It's, you're not, you know, you're not relying on a, a pushed deer by somebody else or, or something like that to, to be successful. Everything is in your hands. And I remember the first, um, my first, whitetail that I shot at, I missed, I shot over its back. It was a year and a half old buck and 20 yards. And, uh, I was in a tree lounge stand. I don't know if you, you ever remember those, but they were kind of a, they sat at an angle and, and the platform kind of was out away from the stand a little bit. And, um, it, it almost is like a, um, like a springboard, like a diving board. And I was shaking so bad in that stand when that deer came by with the gun that I, I felt like I was going to fall out of the stand. It probably had something to do with me missing, but you know, you have like a, a 12 by 18 inch platform to stand on that's suspended off the end of this telescoping stand. That's, you know, two and a half to three feet away from the stand trying to stand up and shoot in it. I remember that too. And, um, that was pretty crazy. And then shortly after that, I moved down to, um, 
the southeast part of Minnesota, which is more agriculture, and it's actually a pretty coveted area when you, you talk whitetails in the Midwest. You have, I was in Winona, yep, and across the river, of course, you have the famed Buffalo County, and then you have Winona County and Houston County in Minnesota, which are two of the two of the best trophy buck counties in uh, in the state of Minnesota, and. Uh, I mean that Mississippi River corridor all the way down through Illinois, Iowa. It, it had it's it's known for yep. for big deer. And my first uh, my first harvest with a uh, with a bow was a like a hundred and twenty four inch five by four nine point. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And then like two weeks later, I shot a doe with a bow. Um, and then it's it's, I've kind of never looked back. I mean, that, so, I mean, my first harvest with a bow was four years after three, four years after taking, taking up that sport. Yeah. All right. So your first buck was 124 inches as far as your first archery buck was concerned. Um, you know, a lot of guys will never shoot a deer that big, especially in some of those higher populated areas. Like you mentioned earlier, how excited were you when and, and maybe tell that story just a little bit of your very first buck with a bow. Yeah, definitely. Um, it was, it was surreal to me. Um, having had grown up hunting public land that's very heavily rifle hunted in the Northern part of Minnesota. Um, I mean, my, my dad growing up, you would apply for a doe permit. And if you got a doe permit, you shot the first doe that walked by. If you, and, and if you were going to shoot a deer, that's how you pull one down. I mean, and that's a lot of people. I, I think that that hunt the the eastern part of the the U.S. You know that that start hunting. That's that's kind of what people know. I mean, unless you have your own private ground to hunt. I mean, that that was the norm for me. That was that was how it was done. And to be able to go down to an area, you know, like southeast Minnesota, western Wisconsin, and and be able to take a you know, what I considered at the time a giant buck, um, it was, it was like, wow, all this time that I put in hunting and I didn't, I didn't realize the, at that point in time, I didn't realize the importance of the rut as a timing window of the rut. I mean, a lot of that stuff, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties is when they really started to, to, to learn how, the cycles happened and, and, you know, when you'd see all this, this spike in activity. And that was early November when I shot that deer. And, uh, I remember hunting really hard during that time period because, you know, the rut was starting and not knowing the importance of that, just knowing that, Oh yeah, everybody says this is the time to be in the woods. And uh, I'd actually walked into my stand the evening before. And I think I may have bumped that deer. I bumped a, a buck that, you know, was significant. I mean, it would have a nice rack. And so that the next day I decided, well, I'm going to take a different route to my stand. I'm going to, I'm going to go the hard way, but I'm going to go around this area where I bumped this deer. Maybe something will happen. And sure enough, I got into my stand and, um, you know, put out a little bit of scent and was able to, uh, you know, this buck came in and started smelling, you know, the scent that I'd put out and, you know, um, came by a, you know, like 18 yard shot. I was on a real steep side hill and he was not quite at eye level on the hill. He was slightly below that, 
But uh, I made a good shot. He ran down the hill 20, 30 yards and fell over right there. And um, that, I mean, I, I remember that like it was yesterday as well. And it's, it's you know, you don't, you don't very often get to talk about what got you into this sport so much. Yeah. So, it's, it's the little things that have the biggest impact. That's for sure. Exactly. All right. So how long did you stay in southeast Minnesota until the West started calling your name? Well, uh, I was down there for probably three years, and that's that also instilled a lot in, into my bow hunting passion that I have now. I really started getting into working in archery, and, you know, I was, I was you know, like 18 years old when I moved down there, and I, I really enjoyed the, the aspect of shooting and, and bows, and I started working on bows at that point in time. And, uh, I worked at a little shop in lacrosse for a brief period of time. Um, it's now been out of business for several years, but, um, and then I had an opportunity to, to move back up to the cities, um, when a store came into town and, and that, that was sportsman's warehouse. And it was when they're rapidly expanding and that was, you know, 2002, 2001, something right in there. And, and I, I took a job with them in the archery department and, and that's kind of where my, my bow hunting, you know, passion really started to grow as I learned how to work on them. And, um, that was during uh sportsman's rapid expansion. And, and a lot of these companies now that are huge companies like Bowtech were new on the, um, new on the sales front when it came to manufacturers. So, I got to go to the Bowtech uh, school several times over the course of a couple of years and kind of worked my way up with sportsmen's and having this new instilled passion for archery. I, I looked for more opportunity to hunt and I started hunting North Dakota for mule deer. I'm like, ah, you know, I want to, I want to hunt something more than what I can do. You know, stand hunting was fun for me, but ever since I was a kid, I was real fidgety and I had a short attention span and, you know, being able to sit all day is important, you know, or for long periods of time. And to this day, I'm still, I get bored sitting, you know, I mean, uh, I just got back this weekend from Nebraska hunting and a lot of the guys wanted to just hunt out of blinds and, and, you know, sitting four or five hours at a time. And it's, I just go stir crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, Starting to hunt out west, it gave you the ability not only to watch the animals and, and watch them interact with each other, but read body language and, and, you know, you put a plan together and it's, you're not relying on that animal to come to you. You're relying on your own, your own abilities and planning and knowing that animal's habits to make something happen. And, uh, not that, not to degrade or take away because, um, I think every skill as a hunter adds to and and one thing is this patience you know and sitting at the right point in time is huge and i know the importance of that now and i think that's what's helped me become a more successful hunter is the ability to be patient when it's needed yeah so um it's 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 interesting at at, at what what can develop when you're patient at the right time. And I think I learned that at an early age, hunting out of tree stands. Right. So as much as I, I hated it at the time. Yeah. It, it was, it was, it's something that to this day, I feel like it's huge. 
good foundation for your hunting skills, yeah. basically. Yeah, exactly. So, so you get up, you know, you're in southeastern Minnesota and you start making some trips. I mean, did you start making some trips out west to obviously to North Dakota to hunt some mule deer? But were you making any other trips out uh, out west before you took the jump to move out west? You know, North Dakota was, was my experience. I, I did one trip to Colorado. Um, I had some some customers when I was working in back in Minneapolis at Sportsman's Warehouse that had become really good friends. They invited me on a um on a Colorado elk hunt and I was I was thrilled to go out there. And uh they brought me along and there was like six of us. We we put up like a I think it was a 16 by 24 army surplus wall tent that had a big stove in it, like a barrel stove. And it was just, you know, go up there and then wander around in the mountains and try to find elk. And that trip was fun for me, but the North Dakota trips were, were more fun because, um, you know, it's, it's glassing from a vantage, finding animals and then planning an approach. And it seemed like the elk hunt, that one elk hunt, it didn't ingrain just because it was it was pretty country, but we we weren't in elk like crazy. I mean, it was like half of us by the end of the trip saw elk, right? And the other half didn't. So it was just a cool experience to 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 experience that camp life and hunt mornings and hunt evenings and right and do that. But North Dakota is kind of where I grew that passion. And I mean, I, I remember traveling to Fargo, which is on the eastern side of the state from Minneapolis. And just, just be that much closer to mule deer country for me because I enjoyed those mule deer hunts so much that I'd done for a couple of years. I would get giddy and just excited to be in new country and that much closer. And, you know, with Sportsman's Warehouse, they were expanding rapidly and I was in management. So I, I, I had the opportunity to, to move and have a job and, and, and have some of my moving expenses paid and, and get into a, an area that's conducive to, you know, what I, what I really wanted to pursue, which was spot and stock style hunting in the West, um, easily, you know, the hardest thing for anybody ever to do is to move because you, I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know, how much am I going to make? Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? Where being with a company that allowed me to move, I was able to move out and, and, uh, and have a lot of those answers and not have the stress of having to find a job and having to find a place to live and, and so on and so forth. So, right. Right. So on those first trips to, uh, North Dakota, like explain to me, what did you do to prepare for some of these spot and stock trip, you know, style hunts that you, ne- that you never did before? I mean, you were going in basically as a virgin to this new style of hunting. Explain to me what your plan or what your goal was when you went out there for the first couple trips. You know, it, it was just to cover as much ground as possible and try to find deer. Um, early in the season, you know, I did some scouting trips, um, and I liked the camping aspect. You know, early in the year, it was really easy to camp. But the, the, the period, the time when the deer were active was so small, um, in the mornings and in the evenings, and it was so hot during the day that, I mean, and the days were so long, I mean, you'd, you'd wake up, get to a vantage, you'd glass for an hour, hour and a half, and the deer would basically be put themselves to bed. And then you'd have a 10 hour day that you'd have to find something to do with. 
And that was obviously early season because their season starts late August, early September. But I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, I remember where I started looking and it, it just, it was miles on the truck looking for animals. And, you know, if you were lucky, you'd get a day that was cooler or maybe even raining and the animals might be out a little bit longer. So, so what was the, um, what was the terrain like out there? Are we, are we talking rolling hills? Was it pretty flat? Was there any trees out there? It, it was, it was in, um, the, uh, it was, it was real breaky country. It was, uh, along the little Missouri river out by Medora between Medora, you know, all the way down South to where it connects with the, the Missouri and then also up towards uh like the the theodore roosevelt national parks north and south unit um and that that country i mean it's it's kind of like badlands yeah mixed with uh you know a lot of cedars and juniper and then you get real thick draws so that i mean from a steepness standpoint you probably have close to 700 to a thousand feet of vertical gain in elevation from the tops to the river yeah um and a lot of that some of it was really really steep and other parts of it were kind of rolling and and so I mean from a terrain standpoint it was it was cool just to be out there. I mean um I remember seeing that that short film that Donnie Vincent did. I think it was called The River's Divide where he was hunting a big buck out there and that's exactly the country that I was hunting mule deer in. Okay. Um and it's 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 breathtaking i mean there's a reason why there's two national parks out there and there's there's the a lot of land set aside and, and it's just it's just amazing that that i was able to hunt in in such cool terrain so yeah so were you successful your first couple times out or was it more just uh an experience at that point my first year out there i was not successful um, I had a ton of fun, but my second year out there and for three or four years in a row, I was. Okay. So again, it, it started off kind of with a steep learning curve where I learned a lot and I learned a lot about wind and how wind moves around terrain and, and stuff like that. And I remember my second year being out there, I, I, I started bringing buddies out there with me, you know, just to have a companion in camp and. You know, I remember in one day I went on nine stocks. I had no, you know, I had no stipulation. It has to be a big deer. I mean, I'd shoot a four corn. I'd shoot a, a four point. I'd shoot a, you know, a, a two by three. It didn't matter. Um, it was just a cool experience. And I think I learned a ton doing that to start with. And it's it's a trial and error process. And you learn to use the terrain and, and cover and the wind. And um, it's you know, now, now North Dakota has gone to draw hunts and I mean, I put in every year for, for out there just cause it's really cool to go back to where I kind of learned how to do that stuff. But I haven't, I haven't drawn in probably three or four years. Gotcha. So on, on rare occasions of, you know, a friend of mine will draw like this year, a buddy of mine drew and I'm going to go with him just, just to experience the country and to, to, to enjoy it, you know, you know, to be out there. So What's the, what's one thing for someone, let's say from the Midwest or East Coast, that might help them 
in their first Western hunt or, you know, people don't really consider North Dakota, maybe the West, but it, it has some of those features, the further West in the state that, that you might think about when you, when you talk about the West, but what are some, what are a couple things that, uh, some flatlanders, I guess, might need to, to consider or know when, when heading to a Western state for any type of hunt? You know, know the, the type of scenario you're going to be in is the most important um, because different scenarios lend themselves to different tactics and different hunting techniques. You know, I mean, if you're um, if you're hunting that area that I was hunting, I, I would say make sure you have quality optics and you have, I mean, different tools that, that I found were invaluable when I was out there are, are things like a binocular adapter to a tripod. You're spending so much time behind binoculars trying to find these animals. And, you know, if they're only moving for a short period in the morning or the evening, <clears throat> you need to capitalize on that. And, it, you know, things like that that will prevent eye strain. And it just it, it turns your your world upside down on, on what works and what doesn't. And, I mean, that, that tool right there is one that I've recommended to people. And they come back after using it in a, in a particular hunt. And they're like, holy cow, this is ridiculous. You know, this is incredible how well this increases my ability to glass for long periods. And, you know, there's other scenarios where, um, you know, if you're in, in heavily timbered country, you can't rely on glass. You know, you, you have to rely on escape routes. And that's that's something or, or you know, feeding patterns or watering patterns or or something like that. That comes a lot with experience, I think. It's not something that you... Uh, you just pick up right away. But I mean, there's some really good books out there that I've read, um, that are, that, you know, that, that'll help a guy out when it comes to that. And, um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's, it's like you say, it's, if there's a steep learning curve to it, don't look at it as being, you know, a success and failure. If you harvest, you got to have an open mind to, I'm going to learn how to do this. And if you, if you look at it like that, you just, analyze every move, every mistake, everything that's happened. And, you know, you'll be able to put together, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, you'd be surprised at what you can get away with, you know, with a lot of these animals and hunting situations. So, so because this is also kind of a gear podcast, as you know, what are some, you know, maybe what are some other than your binocular tripod adapter, what are some products that are, maybe assisted you or made your trip easier or, um, that were beneficial in any way? You know, it's, I, I have a tendency to like to go through products like crazy. I mean, if, if there's another way to do it, I like to try it to try to find out what worked for me, what didn't work for me. And, um, you know, um, there's, I mean, you can go so deep into this kind of stuff. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. But I mean, I started, you know, with a cheap tent and, a, uh, I even had a tent cot for a while and, and stuff like that. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's hard to, to put emphasis on that. I mean, I ran a jet boil for a long time and that was really nice to have and light. You could heat something up quick, but it limited, you know, what, what you could do. Cause, um, it was so, so simple and single oriented. I mean, it's designed to just basically boil water. You're not going to cook in it. Yeah. So, and, um, you know, from a gear standpoint, I, I honestly feel like 
um, you know, using using the technology that's available for us, you know, Google Earth, because you can find a glassing point without being there. You can you can see what you can see from a particular vantage without having to travel to it. And Google Earth is is one of the you know my biggest tools that I use. You know, if I'm hunting a new area, um, and a lot of people don't utilize you know state or federal biologists. You know, if, yeah. if you're looking to go to a new area, I mean, those people are basically paid money to, to know that herd or know that the population base or where where they move to and from and, and stuff like that. And they might not give you a specific drainage or a draw, but they'll tell you what to look for, you know, yeah. if yeah. water is scarce in an area. And, um, you know, to, to put everything on on any one thing, it's it's so many small details that all culminate into one objective it's it's hard to sit one piece of gear but i know in that particular hunt you know optics was huge and having the ability to glass comfortably i mean i i took things that people wouldn't wouldn't think of now i mean i I bought one of those bleacher seat things that's like padded and it's got straps on it so you can kind of lean into it and it's almost like a little chair that just sits on the ground yeah and, you know, if, if, if the ground was wet or if, if we were in snow or anything like that, I would stay dry and I would be comfortable in sitting and glassing for longer. And when you're more comfortable, you're going to glass more effectively. Yeah. You know, so. So as, uh, as you're out there and, um, you know, you're, you're making these stocks on these mule deer and, what what's one of the big what what's the first couple things that you failed at? So like you were it maybe it took you a while to um, you know obviously get that that first you know that first deer spotting and stalking. What were some of the failures that you made, and what did you do to correct those failures in in order to um, get closer to these animals? Being too aggressive yeah. is probably the I, I'm a high percentage stock guy now. So if I have an animal, in particular, if I have a big animal that I'm after, um, unless it's a high percentage stock, a lot of times I will just observe. And you're going to learn more by observing than you are by by maybe making a, a, a shoddy approach. Um, that's one of my biggest tools that I take is, and that stems back to patience, you know, just because you can see that animal there doesn't mean you necessarily need to rush in and try to make something happen right now. Yeah. Because what, another thing that I've learned, a tool that I've, I've learned is that when these animals aren't bumped, aren't pressured, provided that there's nobody else hunting a particular area or animal, they're not going to run over the ridge into the next basin for no reason. Yeah. And if you wait and if, if you make a couple calculated moves at the right time after learning more, you're going to find more success. Um, I, uh, I mean, this, this fall is an excellent example. Um, I learned the pattern of the elk that moved from a feeding to a bedding area in the mornings. And I was able to capitalize on that on a bull I shot in Montana. Um, it was a public land bull. There actually was, uh, a significant amount of hunting pressure where I was hunting. And um, I would watch these animals react not only to themselves and how they interacted with each other, but how they interacted with 
the presence of other hunters. And there were some hunters there. And I think a lot of hunters go into the, go into the woods thinking that the only way to kill an elk is to call it in. Yeah. And I would watch these animals when a hunter would drop in on them, they would call and the herd would just basically slowly start moving away. And, and time and time again. So I thought, well, I'm going to play the card that I know is going to work based on what they're doing. So when I heard somebody start calling at these bulls or these animals, I would move to the opposite direction in, in a, you know, that's, that's a transition to an escape route or something like that. And I, I mean, I killed the bull that I killed. Uh, I didn't make a peep. I, I was on him the night before, but I watched some hunters drop into the basin that he fed in. But every day he moved back into this other basin across the saddle, and that's where I killed him. So, and I, I went in, I didn't make a peep. I, I tried to get him to respond to some bugles the night before. So, not that calling is bad or something you shouldn't do, but I was, I mean, it seems like most hunters just cow call. And, and I've, I've bugled in more bulls than I've cow called in when it comes to, you know, finding success in that regard. So, um, it's, it's just kind of one of those one of those things that you know the more you know the more you can learn the 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 better you're going to do right so kind of so, i mean those principles are kind of the same for whitetail hunting i mean know your yep. know know the pattern and you can have a better sh- shot at uh you know know the information and know the pattern and you're going to have a better shot at uh in, encountering them i mean it's it's kind exactly. of across the board with all animals so yep. So you moved out to Montana in 2007, right? Yep. Okay. So did you move to North Dakota first? No, no. I just hunted North Dakota. I I moved from Minneapolis where I grew up, North Minneapolis, in a little suburb called Blaine. It's way up on the north side. I moved to southeast Minnesota, lived down there for two or three years, and then moved back to Minneapolis. And then that's when I started hunting western North Dakota. Okay. And then with the expansion that Sportsman's was having, I was able to to take a position at one of the new locations in Bozeman. And that's how I landed out here. I stayed with the company for several years. And then, uh, um, you know, my first year in Montana, um, uh, hunting was so important to me that I made sure that I knew well enough in advance to put in and apply as a non-resident. And I put in and I drew a non-resident tag. I think I spent eight or nine hundred dollars on deer and elk tag because I just couldn't think of going through an entire season without hunting. Yeah, you know. And in Montana, you need to have uh, you need to have residency for six months to be required or to be you know legally a resident. And I was moving out here in May, so it wouldn't have been to like in the hunting season that I'd been able to hunt legally as a resident. So I thought I'm just going to put in and I paid out of state tag fees. And, you know, I, I'd done tons of scouting on Google earth, found three or four areas that I wanted to hunt and, and try to scout through the summer and, and learn about game and everything. And, and, uh, one of them I learned was had a, a backcountry rifle hunt. So that was kind of out of the, the picture. And the other one was, was a really good hunting area, but it was also next to impossible to draw. It, the draws were like less than 3%. Yeah. So it kind of left me without many options. 
as far as where to hunt. And I just started talking to some local people and I got pointed in a couple different directions and they said, yeah, you can try down here. You, you know, and, and coming out West, it's, it's almost insulting to ask somebody, Hey, where, where do you hunt? You know, people are so protective of their hunting areas yeah. and, and whatnot. You get a funny look or, but I, I mean, I made some close friends and, and didn't know any better. And I said, where do you think I should go? And they, they pointed me in the right direction. And my first year out here, um, way back in the middle of nowhere, um, I was able to harvest a, you know, a Pope and young bull at five by six that, you know, it's still respectable to this day. Right. So, and that was your first, that was your very first bu- or elk with a elk with a bow. Yep. yep. That was my first elk with a bow. So yep. your first year out there, you, you did your scouting, you did your, you know, you, you made some contacts They kind of pointed you in the right direction. Did you do a lot of summer scouting in that area before the hunting season started? Nope. Nope. Just kind of said, screw it. Yep. I'm, I'm it going was, in. It was, it was one of those deals. Um, I think as the crow flies, or no, it wasn't as a crow flies, but as, you know, basically using a trip on like a GPS, the, that bull was nine miles from the trailhead. Okay. And I did it on a day hunt and it was, it was an eye opening experience so, for me. So um, you, shot I was a, not, you shot this buck nine miles off the trailhead? Nine miles from the trailhead in a, in a wheelless area, you, you know, no wheel travel allowed. Horses are on foot only. Okay. So, and so knowing what I know now about number one elevation and number two, I mean, I, I didn't hike nine miles in from the trailhead, uh, to where I was hunting in Idaho this year, but, um, that seems like a long way for a pack job. It was. Yep. (laughs) So, so it was, it was, why don't you tell us the, why don't you, you know, tell us somewhat of an abbreviated story about this, including the, the pack out. Okay. Well, um, I, I had made the decision to go in. I had a, a guy that had moved out there with me to live in Bozeman with sportsmen's with the store. And we decided to go, I said, here, this is where I want to go. What do you think? And it's like, okay, well, it's, it's just a, it's a real gradual grade. It's nothing steep. It's just long. And we, we got back there and we got the initial five or six miles back and um, kind of hunted our way in. We did hear a little bit of talking, a little bit of bugling about three miles in. And then for the next three miles, we didn't really hear anything. But we got up into this basin and we're looking around and kind of got up on this big bench that's kind of in the middle of this, this basin. It's, kind of, it's almost shaped like a crater with like a big bench in the middle of it. That sticks up higher than everything else. And we we did the, you know, the, the nap, the all important midday nap that, uh, I enjoy so much. It seems like now, um, <laughs> and, uh, woke up about two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon and kind of, we're like, okay, well, we'll just swing down around the backside and we'll start working our way out. And as soon as we kind of swung onto the backside of that hill onto the, the East face, um, we could hear bulls bugling back and forth. And we thought, Oh, okay, well let's work down here and see if they're responsive. And my buddy fell back and he didn't have a tag cause he had moved and he hadn't planned ahead and put in for the non-resident tag. So he, uh, 
he was just there for the hike and for calling if, if need be. And, uh, so we worked in on this bull and he was bugling back and forth. And, um, I felt like I, at the end of it all, I mean, it was, it was, I felt like I was in a Primos video because on this particular set, it was a, a fairly substantial herd that had several satellite bulls. And in the process of him bugling back and forth at the, this bull that kept bugling back at us, <clears throat> two other bulls came in that were, you know, solid six point bulls. I mean, nothing huge. I think it really good looks because it was all thick, dark timber, but um, one of them came into about 40 yards and the other one came in to about 35 through some real thick stuff, but they were, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but they were, they were satellites in this, this main herd bull, <clears throat> um, basically started working his way up to us and the wind stayed perfect the entire time. I had cows come up to probably less than 10 yards kind of looking at me like, what are you, you know, you don't look like you should be here. So, um, and he ended up raking a tree at about 25 to 30 yards for like 20 minutes. And he raked that tree and then he stepped off that tree and started kind of quartering away, kind of down the hill away from me. And he stopped in an opening where I had a shot at about 40 yards and I was able to slip an arrow into him. And then, um, you know, the, the high five started and the track job started and we found him and, um, we had enough light left. It was still early enough to where we broke him down and quartered him. So to prevent any spoilage. And I mean, that was all new to me as well. I mean, I was kind of learning as I go and, uh, we broke it down we hung everything away from the carcass cause we were in a grizzly bear area, you know, where there was a significant population of grizzlies and we, uh, I was like, well, let's take some of the stuff out now. And by this time it's about eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And we've got a trail to go down or a, a drainage to go down to get to the trail and I have some maps and I have a GPS and it's an area that I've never been in. So we, we picked the draw that we were in to go down to the river and then to cut over to the trail. And I swear it was the nastiest, <laughs> the nastiest draw I, I still have ever been in since I moved here, I think. And it's, it's probably just my imagination, you know, fueling that. But, um, we, uh, we worked down, my buddy had two back straps and some neck meat. And I said, well, I'm going to take out, you know, some other of the, the chunk meat, you know, that we'd cut off from the neck and the brisket and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll pack the rack and uh, tie it out. And now I wouldn't do it that way, but I was so excited to have this, this rack that I, I had to have it out so I could show people, you know, and then I'd come back in and get the rest of it. And, uh, we made it probably 300 yards down that drainage and it was so thick and nasty that I ended up leaving the head and the cape and everything. Cause I was like, Oh, this is a giant bull. I'm going to get it mounted and everything. And I was so excited. And so I ended up leaving mine. So I had just a little bit of meat in my companion there for the trip. He had just a little bit. We ended up getting back to the trailhead. I think it was a little after midnight um, and you know, his wife was basically completely flustered at the time, <laughs> like ready to call search and rescue. And I was just like, I, you know, I've, I've always kind of been kind of nonchalant, pretty laid back, easy going. I mean, it takes a lot to get me worried or nervous. And, um, 
the guy that I was with, um, he was he was visibly shaken because he he didn't know where we were, didn't know where we were going, and I was like, you know what? We could make a campfire here. I could sleep, and we could walk out in the morning. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, being worried and nervous about something isn't going to yeah. make it any better. So, and that's something that I think is important. You know, if you stay calm and you know, make rational decisions when you're in a survival situation. And I didn't even consider that a survival situation. You're, you're going to be fine. <clears throat> I think when you get anxiety over that, it's, it makes it tough, but we, we made it out. And, um, so I, <clears throat> I, for the next day, I called every outfitter that I could find a number for to try to get a horse string to, to go back up there with me and get the rest of it out because I wasn't going to do four trips nine miles one way to get it. And my, the guy I was up there with, he had to go back to work and he couldn't take time off. So, um, I ended up finding a guy that would be willing to do it. And we went up and I think we had three, three or four horses and, uh, he couldn't go till the end of his work day. So it was going to be a long night. Um, but we got up there and then it ended up raining and we were on the north face. It was heavy timber, and my GPS would cut in and out, and I couldn't find the head that I left. I couldn't find the quarters. I couldn't find anything. So we, we basically went in and came out, <clears throat> and we were out probably 1 or 2 in the morning yeah. with nothing. So um, <clears throat> I was back to the drawing board. I was calling people that had llamas. I was calling people that had goats, anybody that had anything, I was trying to talk guys into helping me. And I finally found a couple guys that are like, Hey, if you, if you call for us on the way up, we'll go with you. We'll help you pack it out. And there were, uh, there were, there were two, two or three of us. If I remember right, but we went in early again. So this is like three days after I actually shot it and it had been cool. So I wasn't too worried about spoilage. What I was more worried about is a bear finding the carcass. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, um, in the daylight, I was able to get up and get right on the the head and the cape. And I'd actually, there was a bear on the head and the cape. Um, and we ran that bear off. I never got a good look at him because it was so thick. Um, but the hair that was around kind of on the logs and stuff like that were, it was kind of a brown hair. <clears throat> So it, it could have very well been a grizzly bear, but um, I'll never know. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see it, didn't take a hair sample, and it was there was nothing that left any tracks or anything like that. But the whole nose, the whole sinus cavity of the yeah the elk's head had been um, chewed off. <clears throat> the uh, the cape had been torn off. So I ended up taping the rest of the head out, and uh, we hauled the rest of it out, the three of us. And I think it was another late night. I mean, it was after. 10 or 11, we got back to the trailhead. And, um, I remember I was nervous about bears. So I made the decision to pack a 12 gauge yeah. with buckshot and slugs. Cause I wasn't going to let a bear have my, my first elk. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know, it, I basically just loved it for nothing. I mean, I didn't need it. And it, I would, looking back on it, I, I wouldn't have taken it again if I if I had it. I was in the same scenario. It was just kind of more peace of mind than anything. <clears throat> so, but since then, um, 
I've never gone back that far. <laughs> well, it sounded, um, it sounded like it, it took you three days to get your meat and the head out of that canyon. Yep. It was, it was a learning experience. And it taught me that unless I have stuff lined up ahead of time, probably don't don't go nine don't miles do that back. again <laughs> yeah. you know and you know one, one of the one of the passions that that kind of grew in me or one of the one of the things that instilled passion in me for doing this type of a hunt back in the day um and a lot of people might roll their eyes at this but cameron haynes his book backcountry bow hunting yeah i bet you i read that thing cover to cover five or six times and I lived in Minnesota and I, I, I mean, I bought a lot of the gear he used in that book and he described, I bought a marmot helium. I bought a, the same stove. I, I bought a, the same pad that he had. I, you know, a lot of the gear that he had, cause I really enjoyed reading it and that kind of instilled a passion for me. And, you know, if I, the one thing I didn't seem to, it didn't imprint on me was he always had a packer lined up. Yeah. And I wish I would have remembered that more. And since then, if I'm ever hunting one of those scenarios, I'll always find either somebody that has a meat packing license or the outfitter for that area. Uh, Montana is really strict on its, on its outfitting in regards to that. You can't just find somebody and pay them. They have to have the, the license for that given area, or they have to have what's, what's called like a meat packers license. And that allows you only to pack meat, but, these hunters or these outfitters that spend money on the, the, the outfitter license, they're outfitting during September. They're not, they're not going to. And that's why I had so much trouble finding somebody that had horses is because anybody that had horses to use them for something like this was using them. Right. Cause it, I mean, it's like September early to mid September. It's like what early to mid November is for whitetail, right. you know, right. It's, it's that, crucial a time frame when these big bulls are vocal and they're they're out of their normal routine they can be found and and your your odds go through the roof so of course they're trying to make money yeah of course sounds so, like uh sounds like you are having fun out west that's for sure yeah no it's it's a blast and and since then i've, I've hunted similar areas and, and even the same area as uh that uh, that big bull, or that that bull that I shot my first bull, um, but I don't go back quite as far, and I uh, I'm putting, you know, I typically will have somebody on online that I can bomb out, get cell service, and and give a call to, to to make sure that I get help on the way as soon as I get something down. So for sure, for sure. Well, I tell you what, Ben, I I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us about, uh, I guess a little bit about your life and in the move from the Midwest to the West and, uh, some of the successes that you've had along the way. I really appreciate, uh, the time. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you having me on. It's always great to talk to you, Dan. Yeah, you too. I tell you what we'll have to do is, uh, after this season, uh, this coming season, uh, we'll have to get you back on the show and see how you did this season. If you had any success, uh, are you doing anything, uh, different? I mean, any different animals other than maybe mule deer and, uh, whitetails and elk this year? You know, um, I, I kinda, I, I enjoy hunting, you know, my home state of Montana and I have branched out into Idaho this last year. This last year I had a phenomenal season. 
Um, you know, I killed two, three thirty plus bulls, one in Idaho, one in Montana, both on public ground, do it yourself type hunts. And, um, my big, my big thing now, you know, I feel like I've, I've really done well with elk is I want to spend more time to, to pursue mule deer in the West. And, and I, I have done okay with mule deer in Montana, but it just, with the long gun season that we have here that goes through the rut, it just doesn't get the quality of animals that you see in like a Utah or a Colorado. Yeah. So I'm going to put a bunch of time in this season on mule deer and I plan on hunting uh, Montana and possibly Idaho. And that's going to be during the bow season, of course. Okay. So, you know, nothing, nothing too extravagant. There's only so much time in a season. And I mean, I, I'd love to say I had the, the time and the ability to hunt multiple States every year and, and, you know, hunt Nevada in August and, and then hunt, uh, you know, September in Idaho and Montana and everything, but it's, you know, just the, the, in the average man's lifestyle, I just, I just, I only have so much vacation and I'm as, as much as I hate to say it, I, I'm a, I'm more of a weekend warrior than, than anything. I mean, a lot of times I'll take a week during September and I'll take a Monday or a Friday or a combination of both throughout the season. But I mean, I, I wish I had more time, but it also keeps my hunts fun. You know, I, I don't get bored with it. I, you know, I feel like hunting 10 days in a row, you're going to be so drained by that 10th day. Where if you did two four day stints, you're going to be fresh on that first day of the four and, and your mental sharpness is there and, yep. and everything else. So, well, good luck this upcoming season. And, and again, thanks for coming on the show. All right, Dan. Sounds good. I appreciate everything. Hey, I want to send a quick thank you to Ben for coming on the show and uh, telling us a little bit about his life and some of his hunting stories. Uh, I also want to send a quick thank you to Exodus Trail Cameras for uh, uh, partnering up with me and the podcast. I also want to say that if you guys do decide to go to the Exodus Trail Cameras, exodusoutdoorgear.com website and uh, purchase uh, trail camera. If you enter in the code nine fingers, that's the number nine followed by the word fingers with no spaces, uh, you'll receive $20 off of your order. So that's uh, that's a pretty good deal. Now, just another quick reminder to uh, check out the live streaming videos that I'm going to be putting on Facebook every once in a while. And um, I'll let you guys know ahead of time with a post. I'll, I'll make some posts on uh, the Facebook page letting you know in advance when the next uh, feed and stream is going to be. So uh, keep an eye out for that. As always, iTunes, you know, if you're uh, going to Stitcher or wherever you consume, you know, leave a note. Let me know what you guys think. Leave a review. And uh, what else, what else, what else, what else, what else, what else? Instagram, Twitter, and uh, hey, man, ladies and gentlemen, have a great rest of your week. And uh, I guess look out for another podcast coming this Friday. It should be a good one. With that said, have a great rest of your week and wear your damn safety harness.